Welcome to At The Movies. Sit back, crack a beer, and enjoy. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasia Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Lacoste. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions. 1,600 men, your brother among them. Welcome to the 11th episode of At The Brewies, a podcast where we talk about movies and drink beer. My name is Rob. I work in the film industry. My name is Ben. I don't work in the film industry, but I love watching a lot of movies. My name is Andrew. I work in radio. I haven't watched this movie. I did read the Wikipedia page, so I'm excited to compare my opinions to theirs. I am Thomas, also known as Bowser. I'm a lawyer, and I am the fact checker for this podcast. So... Before we get into the movie that we're going to talk about this episode, we had a couple people write in what their favorite uh, movie choruses, three choruses were inspired by Little Shop of Horrors, which was our last episode. So the first one we have is uh, from Terry, and he says his favorite is Alan and Dale from Robin Hood, the Disney Robin Hood, the, the animated one. Not the Dave Chappelle version? Not the Dave Chappelle version. Okay. Or the um, Russell Crowe. Or the Russell Grady, Crowe one. Grady version. Or the Kevin Costner one. That's a oh, lot yeah, of Robin Hood. That's right. Kevin Costner one's pretty good. It's not. <laughs> it's not great. I watched it recently and it's it's pretty bad. I enjoyed it as a child. Well, what's yeah. funny is Men in Tights is a direct parody of that Robin Hood specifically. Oh. Well, and far superior. Yes. But anyway, Terry says he likes it because it's a classic story with classic storytelling tropes and it sort of brings you right into the action. Um which, yeah, makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I yeah. wish I could remember the song that he sings at the beginning. It's kind of like the Trudelati, 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 Trudelati Galaxy yeah. Day. Yes. That was Because yeah. it's like, you know, back then, at least, you know, stories were told more a, as songs than straight up retelling. Right. So it's sort of. And he's yeah. playing like a, a, a period appropriate instrument. Yeah. Right. He's playing like a lute. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. It's um, a good one. Yeah. But so the uh, the second one we got in uh, was from Linda. She likes the Oompa Loompas in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but Willy Wonka. There's only one movie. There's not two. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. I don't know. What, yeah. There were uh, Oompa Loompas in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but do they, they don't sing, right? Or do they? Uh, they do, they do, like dance to weird music. They do. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, but it's just one one actor. They like multiply. Yeah. Uh, um, like uh, like what's his face in the Matrix. Agent Smith. Agent, Agent Smith. Smith, yeah. But she says she likes it because she grew up with it, uh, and it's one of her favorite movies, which is hard to argue with. It's a great movie. It's a pretty good yeah, example. It's a solid of film. film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolute classic. Yeah. And the Oompa Loompas serve their purpose as a great chorus, progressing yeah. the story yeah. and giving you that that moral insights. It's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Do you guys have your favorite uh, movie Greek choruses? The literal Greek chorus from the Disney Hercules movie which also brings you right into the action, kind of covers a lot of exposition while also being really fun, especially for kids. Like, it's really yeah. upbeat, fun, good music. But I also really like the cowboy in The Big Lebowski. Oh, that's a great one. Because uh, I like the way you say Sarsaparilla. Um, and another one would be um, Sattler and Waldorf from The Muppets. Cause oh, those yeah. Guys are Classic. So. Yeah. I got one. It's uh, There's Something About Mary. Ooh. It's got uh, Jonathan Richmond in it. That's right. Who a lot of people don't know or give a shit about, but I love Jonathan Richmond. <laughs> so 
big favorite right there. Okay. <laughs> Bowser, what about you? I'm going to say uh, the mice from Babe. Oh, yeah. The little singing mice. If right? you remember that movie when you were yeah. a kid. They're singing mice. They give you a moral, I believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They function as a Greek chorus. Right. For sure. Um, I agree with Ben. I really like the the literal Greek chorus in Hercules. I think that's such a... they're Well, they're super fun because the music's really good, but it's just such a great like literal joke. <laughs> right. Really right. Fun. Yeah, those were uh, those were some good uh, good choices. There's a lot of films that use it in a really creative way. This really super old storytelling uh, trope. And right. It's fun to see. So for this episode, we're gonna talk about 1917, which came out in 2019. But I think before we really dive into it, we should uh, crack open our beers. The beer this week is uh, well. There's two beers this week. Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh, oh, someone's no. let the air out of your tires. <laughs> I have, oh, geez. So the beer this week, it's a wheat doppelbox. It's a German beer from uh, Bavaria, I believe. Ah, good. Yeah, you got it. It's definitely from Bavaria. It's 8.2. It's made by the Schneider Weiss Brewery. And uh, we're going to have a fun time trying to get, get through this name. Aventinus? 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 I don't know. Aventinus. Yeah, I mean, Aventinus. It's the it's the guy on the front. It's the guy on the front. It's uh, Johann Aventinus. Johann Toromir, but he called himself Johann Aventinus when he wrote because he wrote in Latin, and he was a Bavarian humanist, historian, and philologist from the philologist. 1500s. But not a brewer, so we shouldn't yes. expect much from this beer. <laughs> no, this is his side project. He wrote the Annals of Bavaria, uh, and. <laughs> His name, Aventinus, it, it translates from Latin to John of Abensburg because he's it from Abensburg. Like, so Aventinus is like just bread. the Latinization of Abensburg. Right, that makes sense. Which would make it Aventinus because it's so the long name after him. Right. I got to tell you right off the bat, yes. this is not my type of beer. And you don't like German beers? <laughs> I don't mind it. I don't mind German mm. beers. It's This isn't representative of all German beers, but... Um, this is a beer I would not. It's a Weizen Doppelbach. This tastes like I'm about to black out at the beer garden. I was just going to say, yeah, this, yes, this, this tastes like the Pilsner House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it tastes like I'm, I'm, not like in the, have I'm not in the proper setting. Order two of these liters and just be like done with it. And then, yeah, that's my day. That's <laughs> this, my one's a, this one's an 8.2% uh, alcohol beer. Yeah, it tastes like it. A wheat darker Bach beer. Oh, you guys are into glasses. It's very accurate. I want to pour mine into a glass. So why don't you give us a quick smell test, Ben? Oh, good mug. Good mug. Right, Ben. Ben Perfect. got the the proper German half liter. The smell is like wow. I'm I'm transported to the beer garden. Man, this is German beer for sure. Yeah, it's a nice little blend of a wheat beer and a Bach. This is the kind of beer I would enjoy, warm, in a liter size. Well, you're about to find out because we're going <laughs> to talk a lot about this movie. I feel like anyway. Um, all right. So Andrew, why did you pick this beer? So I don't know much about this movie. I barely even read the Wikipedia page, but I do know it's uh, wait, about World uh, War One. I'm just—I've been reading it the whole time we've been sitting here. Um, <laughs> I do know it's about World War One. So this is a German beer mm. to be followed up with the second part of our beer tasting, right. and it'll make more sense at that point. Okay. All right. Yes. But basically, just I picked it because it's German and it looked good. Well, it is. I I like it. They only um, had two German beers, and one of them was a full wheat beer, which I really didn't want to do. I don't blame you. Anyone else have any thoughts? Again, it's a hot summer day. This would not be my beer of choice. 
So I think it's more of an environmental reaction. My initial reaction of mm. this is not for me, but it's really not for me right now. Mm. Got it. It's my initial reaction. I, I like the beer. Uh, I could use some food with it, I think. Mm. Uh, Whether it's pretzels or something, I think it would go well with uh, a meal more yeah. than just drinking on its own. I think I agree with both of you guys. It's better suited for, for colder weather and definitely with something salty. All right, yeah, so the movie we're going to do this episode, like I mentioned, is 1917, which came out the end of last year, 2019. It's starring Dean Charles Chapman, uh, George Mackay. I realized uh, I learned his name is pronounced Mackay, not McKay. Is that Blake or Schofield? That's Schofield. So George Mackay, directed by Sam Mendes, written by Sam Mendes, first thing he wrote, actually, and uh, Christy Wilson-Carnes. It's very loosely based on stories that uh, Sam and his grandfather told him growing up and was shot by uh, Roger Deakins, which he's one of my favorite. Did he shoot yeah, what... a different movie that we did? I don't think we've done a no? Deakins movie oh. before. Oh. What Never else mind. has he done? No Country for Old Men. He did Skyfall. Oh. He did Blade Runner. Blade Runner 2049. Oh, Fargo. Oh, Fargo. He Yeah, he did most. He did like every Coen's brother movie up until... After um, reading. Oh, Big Lebowski. Yeah. Hail Caesar. I think um, maybe Inside the Wind, Louis Davis was the last one he did with them. Oh, that's maybe. pretty good. Movie. He did a Hail Caesar, though. Oh, he did do a Hail Caesar. In 2016. Yeah. And uh, Sid and Nancy. He's got a lot of work, and he's really, really good. He's one of my favorite cinematographers. He's got a very yeah, particular mean, look. Yeah, those you just listed off are all beautifully shot movies. He's got a, a very deep catalog. Uh, of films. And actually, 1917 is the fourth movie he's done with Sam Mendes. The other three uh, were Jarhead, Revolutionary Road, and, and Skyfall, which I mentioned before. Um, he looks very old and British. He is very old and British. Like he should be drinking tea and like rubbing like lemon curd into his face. <laughs> you should watch. He's is like. Is that what old British people do? He's I, like a, I, I don't know any, so probably. <laughs> he's a very. He's like super twitchy. Despite having like all of these beautiful movies and all of these movies nominated for an Oscar for cinematography, he only just won, I think, a year ago, two years ago, or maybe for this movie. Might have been for this yeah. movie, which it was kind of like a running joke in film that like Roger Deakins has not won his Oscar, like Leo. But anyway, if you watch his his acceptance speech, his head's moving all over the place and he's like scratching his face all the time. <laughs> he's a goofy he, guy. He looks like that. Yeah. But yeah, no, he's he's awesome. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, some other fun facts about the movie. The movie is is made to look like one continuous take, or really two continuous takes. And when they actually photographed it, they couldn't, you know, really do that. And we'll talk about how and why they did that. But the shortest unbroken take that they had was 39 seconds that they actually physically shot. And then the longest unbroken shot that they had was eight and a half minutes, which is pretty cool. Oh, long. wow. Huh. Do, yeah. do we have a stat on the longest? I know that there's like the one from oh. uh, Goodfellas is one of the longest. There's like movies that have done that on purpose. Oh, yeah. That's what I mean. Is there one that has one that's like... Goodfellas. I mean, I know oh, there's no. that movie Russian Ark that's like yeah, three that, hours long that's, and it's all one yeah. take, which is insane. And then there's Children of Men, which I think is about eight minutes. Uh, there's, when they're in the car? Well, there's the car and then the battle scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he, yeah. like, crosses the street and there's, like, the tank right. and stuff and he goes up in the building. It's oh, a great movie. Oh, that's such a good movie. And there's Atonement, which is another World War One movie. has that really long take where he's uh, James McAvoy's walking down the beach. 
And speaking of one like meant to look like one take, Birdman. Birdman. Oh. And then uh, The Revenant had a bunch of really long takes, but I don't think they were, I don't think any of them were over five minutes, but still a Mm. lot of long, long takes. But uh, yeah, and to sort of to work with those long takes, they built just under a mile of of actual real trenches for this movie, um, which is all in a row. Yeah, there's one really long section and then one corner offshoot. And all of that together was just under a mile. Okay. So, yeah, that's sort of introducing the movie. Uh, ben, do you want to give us a quick summary? of? Yeah, buckle of, up. You ready to go? Here we go. Let's do it. Go, right. go, go. The film begins in a French field near the front lines of World War One On April 6, 1917, a soldier named Blake is chosen for an assignment and told to pick someone to accompany him. Blake chooses the nearest, a friend named Schofield. They report to a bunker where the general, played by Colin Firth, reveals that several miles away, the Germans have essentially retreated into a reinforced position. It is a trap to lure an unsuspecting allied battalion into a slaughter if they attack. The communication lines have been cut, so the duo must go on foot to deliver the orders to call off this doomed British attack and save the lives of 1,600 soldiers. Adding to the urgency is the fact that Blake's brother is also part of this attacking group. Schofield and Blake make their way through the British trenches and into a gruesome and obstacle-filled no-man's land. In the now-empty German trenches, they get to a bunker in which they find tunnels which will be their best passageway further. One of the many rats knocks down a sack and triggers a tripwire. A huge explosion buries Schofield. Blake heroically saves his life by digging him out and guiding him through the collapsing tunnels. Schofield and Blake then make their way across a quarry pit and into a field with an abandoned farmhouse. Schofield finds one living cow along with a bucket of fresh milk, which he pours into his canteen. Just as this happens, a dogfight between two British planes and a German fighter happens overhead. The British shoot down the German plane who crashes right into the dilapidated barn where Schofield found the milk. The German pilot is injured but alive. Blake insists they help. As Schofield gets water off screen, Blake is stabbed by the German. Schofield immediately shoots the pilot dead. This begins a very sad, tragic scene as Blake dies in Schofield's arms, but not before telling him to write to his mother and find his brother to complete the mission. Tell me you know the way. I know the way. I'm going to head southeast until I hit a coast. I'll pass through the town and out to the east, all the way to Quasiel Wood. It'll be dark by then. That won't bother me. I'll find the second. I'll give them the message. And then I'll find your brother. Just like you. A little older. Moments after this gut-wrenching scene, another troop of British soldiers pull up to the farmhouse. An understanding captain, played by Mark Strong, who you might know from the Kingsman movies, or as Lord Henry Blackwood from the 2009 Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr., moving in the same direction (laughs) as his destination. Schofield joins the convoy. At one point, the truck gets stuck in the mud and the soldiers have to push their way out. We see Schofield's determination to achieve his mission as he leads the men in physically pushing the truck out of the mud. Later, the convoy is forced to make a detour because of a downed bridge. The clock is ticking. Schofield doesn't have time to take the detour and crosses the channel by himself. Schofield comes under fire from a sniper on the other side of the channel. Schofield races into the tower and shoots the German sniper. He kills the German, but in doing so, falls back down the stairs. he just come up. He is knocked out cold, giving us the one and only true fade to black cut of the movie. When he comes to, 
it's a nightmare scene and the tower he's in is now right on the edge of a town or city that has been completely bombarded as he continues to advance he runs into enemy troops and is forced to hide in a basement there he finds a french woman who is protecting a baby that is not her own the woman insists the baby needs milk well holy frickin' hell remember that time he got the milk back at the ranch well it was meant to be she tells him where to find the target by traveling down the river he composes himself and runs back into the hellscape he is forced to strangle a German soldier in a very tense moment. An injured and haggard Schofield continues to barrel through the town under heavy pursuit as day begins to break. He dives into the water to escape, only to be swept up by the rapids and thrown over a waterfall. He floats into a dam made of one part fallen trees and two parts dead bodies and emerges from the river. On the bank of the river, he has a very justifiable breakdown. He hears an English soldier singing to his comrades in the distance. He's found the group he's been looking for, and his wits are restored. He's still hundreds of yards away from the colonel, who needs the orders, though. The trenches are filled with men who are about to charge. Schofield can't run through them to get the message sent fast enough. Once again, he heroically emerges alone from a trench into the line of fire to run parallel to it while the first wave of men begin to attack. He's knocked down a few times, but he gets up and presses on. He finally reaches the command bunker and breaks through to meet no, 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 you got to be fucking kidding me. Yet another cameo from an actor who isn't a Sherlock Holmes movie or TV show. None other than Benedict Cumberbatch himself, <laughs> who is the colonel determined to continue the attack. The colonel finally acknowledges the order and pulls back the first wave, saving the lives of many, but not all. Schofield then begins his search for Blake's brother, who was in that ill-fated first wave. As he makes his way through the grievously wounded, he miraculously comes across Blake's brother, who is seemingly uninjured. He takes the news with a stoic sadness and, and thanks Schofield for being with his brother. He was a good man. Always telling funny stories. He saved my life. Oh, I'm glad you were with him. Thank you, Will. Schofield walks away from the camp toward a lone tree at the edge of a vast field. It ends as it began, as he sits against the tree and naps, but not before he pulls, the, pulls out two photographs, one of two young girls and one of a young woman, the latter with a message on the back telling him to come back to us. As he shuts his eyes, the credits roll. Awesome. Yeah. just want to add also another... Sherlock actor appeared in there in the beginning of the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, that guy. The, the actor yeah, that played Moriarty, Andrew, yeah, Andrew yeah, Scott, I, who played Moriarty, was a slightly crazy lieutenant in the. Yeah. In yes. The right before they go into the no man's land, he he's kind of like mm -hmm. the lead. He's the captain leading, or I think he's a captain. I think leading. Or he's a lieutenant. He's a lieutenant. He's a lieutenant. Sort of leading that. Yeah, sort of in charge of that frontline bunker who's like, you guys are crazy, you're going to die. We lost an officer and three men two nights ago. They were shot to bits patching up wire. We dragged two of them back here. Nearly bothered. Sir, the general is sure the enemy have withdrawn. There are aerials of the new line that shut up. We fought and died over every inch of this fucking place. Now they suddenly give us miles. It's a trap. But you know, there's a medal in it for sure. Nothing like a scrap of ribbon to cheer up a widow. Essentially dismisses this whole thing, but he's like, all right, you got these orders. Throw back the flare gun when you uh, go over. When you die. Yeah, yeah when you die. When you die, throw the flare gun back, yeah. But yeah, so three actors from Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. They got to get Colin Firth <laughs> in a Sherlock Holmes movie. Oh, uh, yeah.
So Bowser, can you can you explain where Lieutenant comes from? Lieutenant versus Lieutenant. Why? Why do they pronounce There's it no that way? F in that uh, word? <laughs> there there is no F in the word. You it is derived like from a French word. Yeah, Liu, oh, meaning in oh, place of. It's difficult to say why they started pronouncing it with an F, but um, perhaps the difficulty in pronouncing the French way, maybe it was originally pronounced more like a lieutenant, and it became lieutenant in English, and lieutenant in America. But they do pronounce it with that F, basically. I think it it does have to do with the the, just the quirks of the English accent, and also the fact that in Old French, a variant spelling of Lou was Luf. Apparently. Oh, okay. So oh, yeah. that's that probably might have something to do with it as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's but they always... don't spell it with nap now. No. Yeah, yeah. That's always fascinating to me where that comes from. Um, but they still call it lieutenant, even today. Yes. English is crazy. English. Yeah. Well, it's mm-hmm. a big mishmash. Do I do a quick beer check? How's everyone doing on their beer? I'm about a third of the way through. About I'm halfway I'm, through. I'm moving pretty slow. I'm moving pretty slow too. I've got not very far. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I'm gonna. A slow beer. I'm not gonna want it when it's hot at the bottom. I know that. Yep. <laughs> I think I think Bowser's point about the food is key. Like if I had some food. Yeah, if I had some food. Food, this way. food, beer, food, beer, food, beer. <clears throat> like a nice schnitzel, salty pretzels. Yeah. yeah. I've I've got some some Snyder's hard pretzels in the Ooh. cabinet. Maybe we'll have one later. Oh. Yeah, that yeah. does sound good. Too bad there won't be any beer left at that point. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I'm still enjoying it though. But yeah, it's definitely not a fast drinker. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the second time I've seen this movie. The first time I saw it, Ben, you and I went to see it uh, in theaters when it came yep. out. You know, my reactions are more or less the same. I think I'm second viewing, I'm more impressed by the photography and the way it's executed. Um, it's such an exhilarating movie. And it's so incredible to see how everything comes together from the camera, the light, the storytelling the direction, how they cut everything together to make it feel seamless. The music is amazing. It's Thomas Newman, who's got a very particular sound, but a lot of the score isn't very Thomas Newman, except for those some parts where he brings in that piano. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is Thomas Newman. (laughs) Hmm. Um, What else has Thomas Newman done? He did um, Road to Perdition, which was also Sam Mendes uh, directed, and then uh, Shawshank Redemption, which Deacon's shot. So, oh, hell yeah. yeah. All right. Definitely get that sort of uh, morose. Yeah. You know, a lot of that vibes. That yeah. particular piano sound. Yeah. And he also he has a famous brother, right? They're brothers, not cousins. Randy um, Newman. Yes. Randy. Randy Newman. Famous for scoring Toy Story. Toy Story, yes. They're no, cousins. They're cousins. Yeah, they are oh, cousins. Very powerful family, family tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the other thing, like, the music is, is really good and it, like, works really well together with the photography. The single shot effect is really amazing to watch and powerful. But at the same time, you don't really notice it until you start to think about, like, oh, wait, it hasn't really cut yet. <laughs> it's kind of like a subconscious thing. And then a couple other, like, little thoughts. Like, Ben mentioned this in his summary. You know, the milk, the con- I called it the convenient milk. <laughs> All right, that was a little silly. But yeah, whatever. Amazing. Yeah. It sounds um, like a bad video game quest. Go well, so, so what I what I left out is when he goes and he meets this French woman who's caring for this baby in this town that's been completely attacked. And there's a moment and the music adds to this a little bit, too, where it's like 
dude, you should probably just stay with this woman and save their life because she's this is not going to go well for her and this kid. Yeah. And I don't know, for me, you get that feeling, sort of the same feeling that, that the French woman is getting, like, oh, my God, this guy can well, I think, protect I me. Think... And so he offers the food that he yeah. had been given, like the rations. Yeah, she's like, like everything he has. No, yeah. it can't be food. He needs milk. He needs milk. What? No way. Wow. <laughs> Just like most of this doesn't seem contrived. very contrived, but that, yeah, if like, any like... moment does, that part. Yeah. yeah. But I kind of let it slide. But the, the, I, think, the other... I think he was, I, I think I was trying to show that he was like sort of tempted to stay there. Almost. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, like, that's, yeah, I think that's why I kind and of abandoned his mission. Like, yeah, like it was, was meant to be there. Yeah. Like, oh, exactly. yes. yeah. It yeah. was a little bit more than just pure novelty that he had, you know. But um, the, the other thing I thought was really funny is so Blake is played by Dean Charles Chapman, and then Blake's brother is played by uh, Richard Madden. And of course, Richard Madden is famously known as Rob Stark from Game of Thrones. And then Dean Charles Chapman is famously known as Tom and Baratheon from Game of Thrones. So having Tom and Baratheon and Rob Stark as brothers, I thought was pretty hilarious. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're yeah, pretty yeah. much the opposite of that in Game of Thrones. <laughs> but also in Game of Thrones, they're good characters. They're like yeah. no, absolutely. innocent, somewhat, somewhat oh, yeah, sure. innocent characters, yeah. especially yeah. Tom and there are yeah, only like especially. 20 British actors that appear in everything now. So. <laughs> all <true>. actors. <laughs> yeah. I was watching one of the behind the scenes thing and like one of the producers said, you know, you look at it and it's like the best of British acting <laughs> is in this movie, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which is pretty but true. You know, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin right. Firth, you know, Andrew Scott. But he's Irish though, isn't he? Andrew Scott. I, think he's Irish. I don't know. Anyway. I've only seen him in... Oh, Andrew Scott is Irish, yes. He's okay. Irish. Yeah. That's correct. All right, so, so Ben, this is also your second time viewing it. Your initial thoughts changed, too? Or um, the same? So, yeah, I mean, like, watching a movie the second time, you, you go in knowing stuff, and also watching it for the purposes of this. I'm looking at it mm. a little bit more analytically. Yeah. But both when I saw it for the first time and even watching it analytically, I am... Um, amazingly impressed albeit as someone who is relatively outside of the the technical ways of doing it but how they stitch the scenes together mm-hmm. and how they hide the cuts is massively impressive like you said the way it immerses you into it even when they're going through the no man's land and the camera seems yeah. to be going through the barbed wire yeah. and like, while you while it's going through you're kind of in this weird feeling of what, who are we as the viewer and then when they go around that mm-hmm. pond that that's in that big ditch the camera's been following them but then as they go around the in the background the camera just continues to pan yeah, to the right insane. right over the water you don't see yeah. any ripples in the water but it's right above the water so it totally removes that you're watching a movie feeling mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, oh well yeah the camera would have been there would have been there so that was very striking, not to mention the action itself and the story is very exciting and inspiring and super emotional at times. Um, and the acting, I thought, was was beautifully done, especially mm-hmm. the, the two guys, uh, yeah. Blake and Schofield. I didn't uh, I knew that Blake was played by the guy who plays Tommen, but I did not recognize the main character, Schofield. Yeah, he's uh, pretty, but I thought his portrayal was uh, 
was great. He had a sense of innocence and then there's mm -hmm. the mystery throughout that he translated really well. And then mm -hmm. you finally get this, the mystery being of like what his past is. There's conversations in the movie where yeah. he's talking about not wanting to be home. I hated going home. I hated it. When I knew I couldn't stay, when I knew I had to leave and they might never see me. You know, a sense of futility throughout mm -hmm. all of this stuff. And then you, you figure out he has this wife and kids who really yeah. want him to come home. And he's clearly torn between uh, his ability to do that and his purpose in the war itself. So, And the fact that he had won, apparently, a medal, which he sold. or Yeah, at the song. Or yeah, right. or, or sold yeah. it for a bottle of wine. So it seems like he's disillusioned with the whole war at that, at this point. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Start of the movie. Men have died for that. If I got a medal, I'd take it back home. Why didn't you just take it home? Look, it's just a bit of bloody tin. It doesn't make you special. It doesn't make any difference to anyone. Yes, it does. And it's not just a bit of tin. It's got a ribbon on it. <laughs> and with the limited amount of dialogue that is in this, or at times in this movie, I thought his portrayal, his acting, um, conveyed all of that really, really beautifully. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Bowser, this is the first time you had seen it, right, for this? Yeah. Well, uh, what did you think? What was your initial reaction? I was going into this without any knowledge about the movie. I did not know the plot or really anything about it, except for the fact that it appeared to be one take, as we have been discussing. So I was actually really surprised when he uh, died, uh, when Blake died. It was really <laughs> yeah. sad. Halfway uh, through. It's like, what? Halfway through. Yeah, because you were expecting both. I was expecting both of them to make it. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, because you see him filling up the the water, and then uh, turns back, and he and he's stabbed. And F, yeah. yeah, so I think, I think there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of tension. You're always on the edge of your seat, sort yeah. of, because of the way it's filmed, and things are always happening. I like the fact that how Blake sort of is this like sort of optimistic young young guy even in the beginning he's like when are we gonna go over when are we gonna mm -hmm. attack you know he's talking about wanting to get home by summer or something and they have like this optimistic young guy and it's like sort of grizzled veteran not old but yeah, he went through the song disillusioned a yeah. little bit yeah yeah disillusioned yeah yeah that's a good way to put it so it's sort of like a classic sort of story where this grizzled like old guy who doesn't really care about anything anymore is now inspired by uh the death of his comrade to fulfill the mission, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a good uh, story. I don't think it doesn't go deeply into like the war and like what the war is about or anything like yeah. that. Other than the fact that they they have a hard time wrapping their heads around why they're there. Yeah, which yeah. is you know. Yeah, but they're they're not the like yeah. Since there's very little dialogue, I think they they don't talk about it too much, except for the fact that like the, that's obviously the setting of the movie, so that it mm -hmm. has to be a factor in what they're doing but um, mm -hmm. yeah but i see what you mean like that yeah. could be translated to anyone feeling like whatever they're doing what what is the greater purpose of this of all this violence mm -hmm. or all this agony or struggle and whatnot yeah yeah i would agree with that that the con i mean it's touched on a little bit with benedict cumberbatch's character i hoped today might be a good day hope is a dangerous thing that's it for now. And then next week, Command will send a different message. Attack at dawn. Yeah, like next week right. we're going to yeah. do this anyway. Like, so yeah. I, have a, I have a question. Yeah, yeah that was Did rough. this movie 
really need to be told during World War One. Yes. I'll get into this in the thematics, but yes, I think it's specific to World War One because the nature of World War One is so like the politics around it. Politics sounds like a sort of a reductive word, but um in terms of the way the war came about was so high level, politically speaking. You know, they were talking in the in the truck while they're driving from the farmhouse to Akust. You know, this isn't even our country, right? And they're like, they don't understand because there wasn't much to understand. It's this weird web of like these three cousins that everyone got connected and it didn't make any sense for this war to happen, yet it did. Yeah, but could you tell this story in like a Vietnam war or like an Iraq war? I, I think would say you can like, translate really some like of the themes of the movie, but the, especially since it's from the stories that Sam Mendes' grandfather told him. Oh no, no, of course. I'm, ju- I'm just important yeah. to the context. Trying but to get like the themes. Doesn't... The themes could be taken to to a different time or place. I think it would translate decently to Vietnam. I don't think it would translate to World War II, and no. I don't well, think it World would War translate to animal. like Desert Storm or something. Um, How about the Civil War. Civil War? No, I don't think it would translate no. to Civil War. I don't know. I just, I just don't <laughs> like this story. You don't like the story. Yeah, what that's, what like that's what I'm getting at. Just, this is this is it, a tough is one it, to read. This is a very visual story. Yeah, yeah. World War One had a uniquely devastating yeah. sort of depiction. No, but just like the setting, the fact that like there's this no man's land that looks like this alien planet, basically with craters mm-hmm. and like dead trees in this beautiful country. Sometimes they show like this, like lush green idyllic farmhouse and these towns the cherry trees like small country towns there's a couple cherry tree yeah. uh, depictions which mm-hmm. yeah are sort of symbolic i think also oh for I sure do. yeah mm. world one definitely has this very specific sense of complete obliteration these like massively devastating battles over just small inches, yeah. yeah inches it's just exhausting to think about you know right yeah. Um, and I think I think World War One was uniquely static in terms of like yeah. the war is taking place here and the line is here. These trenches are like almost like little towns and they have the street uh, names, right? Lines running back. They have street names. Yeah, you see in the movie they have street names. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of a unique aspect of uh the yeah. setting. When you see them in the trenches even though usually they're walking through the trenches, but you can see all these other soldiers. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times those soldiers have this like devastated, futile sort of look or like, I don't know what would be the word greater than boredom. Like shell shock. More than boredom. Shell, yeah, shell, yeah, shell shock. Yeah. Shell shock and just, just sitting there just drinking or smoking and just dejected maybe is the word that yeah, I'm they're, looking for. They're in their own uh, little world in a way. That's which might be a, a pure devastation. Yeah, which I bring up because that might be a, a something something not unique to World War One, but especially noteworthy during World War One, yeah. as opposed to a no, yeah, storm. Or like whenever whenever I, I think about World War One, I, I picture people like in the mud eating cheese. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. And mm-hmm. you know, but they weren't really in mud. I mean, they're in these trenches that are built up over. Months and months get, that they're working at, and there's they rats, and there's mice, and there's bugs. It had to be rats. Well, the trench foot came from the mud. Yeah, no, there's definitely, yeah, yeah. It's definitely mud. Definitely mud. Oh, there's mud. One but thing I noticed. I didn't picture them like lying in a puddle eating cheese. I mean, like in a muddy sh- trench. <laughs> <laughs> Trenches of cheese. That's a good album. 
<laughs> Brand new meatloaf album. <laughs> I got a trench foot. I got cheese foot. Um, so there were three trenches that you see. You yep. see the trench that they start mm. in, the German trench, the okay. empty German trench, empty, which is yeah. like so much better. I so think. much better engineered. Like way better. Like this five feet of concrete base and a whole bunch of sandbags like perfectly, perfectly stacked. stacked as opposed to the british one which is much thinner much uh it's not as deep uh a little bit more much like, more muddy probably and yeah, then you go shot. to the, the, the white i don't know if that's because are they're, they're going towards the coast but they weren't it's a new trench it's a new trench <laughs> yeah, oh it's, it's a new trench but it's like more chalky soil so it's like yeah it's white yeah, yeah yeah it's like a different rock or yeah. something like that yeah, or different yeah. uh yeah that's pretty cool that that attention to detail yeah. Well, I mean, just so, like in general, the way it moved from setting to setting so fluidly was pretty amazing. And like how different each part was without cutting the camera. <laughs> it's pretty incredible to see. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. One one notable part was when he's when Schofield strangles that one German guy. First of yeah. all, that scene was like edge of my seat. Oh, my God. There's that guy in the background, barely in the shadow enough. And that thankfully that guy's drunk. Anyway, after he does that and he starts running to the river. Is when the day breaks. Oh my god! And I'm going to talk about that later. But that's just like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Yeah. So, uh, Andrew, what did you think of the Wikipedia? <laughs> I mean, I kind of did already. It's not an interesting story. Did you get through the whole Wikipedia page? Oh, yeah, I did. No, no, I've okay. gotten through the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, it's a fine Wikipedia page. It it just feels like a a movie for movie people, and I'm not a movie person. Hmm. Is the plot summary too cut and dry then? It doesn't... It's pretty cut and dry. If, if you ignore the fact that this guy heard it from his grandfather, did it even really need to be told through this lens? And no, it didn't. You could have told it in any war setting with any, I don't like the government mentality or I don't like what's going on. Someone more important than me has decided this. It just is kind of, I don't like it. <laughs> but it's a good Wikipedia page. It's well researched. Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, the Wikipedia page itself is well researched. I just like, I'm not gonna watch this. Watch this movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 can, I mean, based on yeah, like if you're just doing a cut and dry summary of the plot, I can understand that reaction completely. But, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later. But all the other stuff coming together, I think, is what makes this movie unique. Yeah, and, you know, like maybe maybe movie. you're right. Maybe you're right. It's a, it movie, a movie person's movie. Maybe like, yeah. Maybe that's true. But like oh yeah, it's cool that the medium he shot it is that important. Way. The medium yeah, of course. is very important for the emotional impact or yeah. the emotional impression that the this as a book story would be pretty gives. boring. I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean, it would basically be like thoughts. I mean that the book is maybe, would be all quiet on the western front, right? Where nothing really. He just is kind of like hanging out in terms of plot. The point of the book is reading. All yeah. the way he's thinking about everything and like these little mini scenes, right? Like with the goose and the wine and stuff in mm -hmm. that book. That's the point of it. And yeah, I mean, if I only read the plot description, I think I would probably agree with your reaction. Thanks. <laughs> um, that being said, let's... I would have been like, why did they not? So when he gets off the truck after they take him a couple miles or whatever it is and the truck can't go over because the bridge is broken yeah and he immediately starts getting shot at 
It's like you just had 30 soldiers there. Why didn't they cover him while he yeah, I, crossed over the bridge? I think to, that to me, that's sort of a little bit of, of stage magic. I feel like there's too many moments like that. Like the milk. Even if it is a, a true story, it feels contrived. I, yeah, I, I get that for sure. But if that's it's like, pretty, oh, I found a key. Amazing. Let's see what the key opens. And it opens the door you have to go through an hour later. It's like that. No, that's not a thing. No one picks um, up a key hoping that it's going to open a door an hour. Later. Well, the milk doesn't really matter. If you didn't have the milk, yeah, but it it's there. The same story, it just wouldn't. No, yeah, I agree with. But that. it's there. It just all feels like super contrived. I said I've said contrived a lot, but like it feels like somebody wrote this story for you to it's for you to do it. Like it's like, all right, yes, it's, it, it's a movie. It's, yeah, I know, but I don't <laughs> like that. I want it to feel like real life. If it's going to be a a realistic movie about something. Wait a minute. I mean, wait, if I watch wait a Willy minute. Wait a minute. You want it to feel like, yeah, I was going to say, you like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate No, no, I'm not. You like I'm, Little Chocolate Factory. You didn't like. You won't even Wendy let me finish my <laughs> statement. All right, go I ahead, didn't go watch ahead. Wendy yeah. and Lucy. That was, that was a garbage Wikipedia page. It's probably a garbage <laughs> movie. No, like, it, yeah, if the it's most be a true to life movie, movie we've like, talked about. Oh, it's neat that, like, oh, Charlie Bucket gave back his gobstopper or whatever. Like, fine. That's like, that's the point of the movie is it's a it's a tale about morality and like how to be a good person this is a real movie about real people but there's still like this weird fantasy element that you're like the milk doesn't fucking matter but mm -hmm. it's there and they used it and it's kind of stupid i mean you know i'm i'm willing to forgive <laughs> some convenience in order to fit the format it invalidates it to me i don't think it necessarily if something's contrived that it's terrible that it's bad it's merely that it's contrived, like a lot. But when you're of trying I mean, to make, a when does it go from well written to contrived? When it does it, like if something, because you're contriving it if you're writing it, right? That's your point, right? Yeah, right. But I think the difference between something feeling contrived and something well written is something where, like, you can watch it or read it or whatever you know the medium is, where you don't get a sense of oh, that's why that exists. You don't notice the seams while you're consuming it. It really bothers me that he filled his canteen with milk. You're a warrior. You're a soldier. You're going to go do something. You're going to be thirsty. Nobody's Nobody wants milk. They even made a joke out of that in Anchorman. Like, you're not going <laughs> to... No, uh, that's so, a bad wait, choice. Yeah. Like, why would you want milk? But, but why here's, wouldn't no. that be like, well, finally if I have, get something yeah. that's fresh milk? Like, why wouldn't I want I completely disagree want with that, that at that point. Yeah, I so, completely disagree. Yeah, I think I'm on the same side as you guys. I, my counter to that would be, these guys are not professional soldiers. This isn't something like Desert Storm, for example. They're drafted. They're, they're boys. They're, they're pushed they're into this war. Like they're against, younger than 20. Yeah, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, finding a bucket of fresh squeezed milk would be a huge boon. They're talking yeah, about how there's I no like... food. They don't have any food. They use up all the water in their canteens. And the water in the well is like mud colored. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know the water was fresh milk. And, I would go like, the water. Things are like, yeah, you know, they use like the water to clear their eyes. They, I don't know if the summary on Wikipedia says this, but they have a whole conversation. The, at the summary beginning of Wikipedia of the movie. doesn't even mention that they got the milk in the first place. It just says that they had some milk from the farm. <laughs> oh, well, it's garbage. It's not a good part Wikipedia of, story. As part of that that that, that storyline, they they there's a whole the Wikipedia is conversation. Like, like the their film. conversation on the way to the talk to the general to get their assignment is a, is in part about food and like, yeah, like the first they don't have food. And yeah, they, like the first thing Blake asks is like because he was asleep. He's like, oh, did they feed us? And um, he's ready to take the food from the Germans at the rat 
the rat is eating. Right. And he's like, yeah. you're not that hungry. You are can't you? be All that right. hungry. Whatever so their reasons are. This this is another reason that probably World War One is the appropriate context for the story. The question about could this story be told during a different war? Um, and Vietnam came up a lot. And the idea of the soldiers individually have no stake in the outcome of the war. They're not fighting for anything that will change them. It's it's powers greater than them that fight over them. But I think in Vietnam, while there was there were problems with the types of consumables they were getting, especially with like drugs, probably stuff, like I think way they more into sweetened condensed milk. I think they were better fed than the British it soldiers. No, it was nowhere near World War One standards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so you that, know, being that's 50 years later, they kind of figured out some of the technology for <laughs> getting food to soldiers. But yeah, right. no. Well, they also figured out ways of getting them heroin and, and other drugs but anyway that's a conversation oh it's a different podcast <laughs> <laughs> um but no you know and that's underscored by by um schofield saying like you know he traded his his metal for wine oh sure mm-hmm. the the metal doesn't mean so much to him he'd rather have the wine right um, which is an interesting one as opposed to like a sandwich or food it was wine yeah you know so you guys a, a drink sorry but, to uh totally derail the conversation but i just finished my beer Ooh, I'm, and a, I'm two sips. There's a, a chunk of sediment in my glass. Oh. Like a pretty good... Well, like, this beer is unfiltered, unpasteurized, and... Uh, Ooh, like I the milk. it's can't ferment it. <laughs> like the milk. <laughs> is it can fermented? It says right here, bottle fermentation. Bottle ferment. Yeah. Bottle yeah. fermentation. It's not a bottle, guys. It's a can. No, they ferment it in the bottle and pour it in the can. <laughs> very efficient <laughs> yeah but i had a good chunky chunky yeast in there yeah interesting anyway let's talk about our second beer here yeah beer number yeah, two let's, number let's two take a, a new beer break can anyone guess why why i picked this beer uh, All right. well it's um, english it's british it is british that's why i picked it that's the whole oh, okay. story bowser what is the beer fuller's extra special bitter it is on tap and when i say on tap i mean on pole on one of their uh, cask poles in every pub in London. Because they have those. Uh, yep. That's what it sounds like. This one, along with the other Fuller's classic, which is probably, might be more what's, popular. I'm not sure. The London the other Pride. Fuller? The London oh, Pride, yeah, is, okay. is, yeah. London Pride. Which I've had, and that's very good. Uh, it's the kind of bar, it's the kind of beer you see yeah. in an Irish pub in New York, and you're like, I'm not going to get that because the tap is dirty. <laughs> 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 So again, yeah. it's kind of like you the want to clean Japanese. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, this this smells very British. This is just one of the beers that in London that basically it's like it's like the Yingling over here. That's a really good comparison. It's just one of the standards like that you just drink all day at a pub, right? I mean, you're tasting it now. Yeah. It's like I just I just took my first very malty. I totally get that. Oh yeah, very malty but relatively oh. light. Contrary to the German one, I could have so many of these <laughs> so, I yeah. Could, like, oh yeah sit at a bar and just drink this like water. yeah you you like you pour your first one and suddenly it's six hours later and you're talking to someone <laughs> you've never met before it's the kind of beer like i wouldn't even be upset if they gave it to me with ice in the glass i'd be like all right that's fine <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just drink it <laughs> it's not it's not gonna make this experience worse <laughs> i noticed on the bottle you could... says voted britain's best is by that who bullshit? by who the, yeah, yeah, the, that, the company? That, that, that's my immediate reaction like <laughs> Was it the queen or was it like Mr. Fuller? (laughs) (laughs) Brewed beside the Thames. Be kind of cool if it was brewed in the Thames. Four out of five dentists (laughs) brewed this in the Thames. 
The the fifth out of five is Steve Martin. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like it. It's good. Yeah. It's got a good color. It's mm-hmm. a be- very pretty beer. Well, the unique blend of Northdown Target Challenger and Golding's Hops balances the rich multi notes of a, for a smooth, full-bodied beer bursting with marmalade fruitiness throughout. I mean, it wow! What, like a, what an insightful <laughs> review, Ben. <laughs> I mean, it tastes like a well, I might have read that one from the back of the bottle. Then, <laughs> definitely a pub beer. Yeah. Not something I would yeah. drink in my backyard, but something I play darts. Bar. I play yes. darts with, yeah. You need darts with this beer. Sure. <laughs> Maybe some snooker. <laughs> some snooker, yeah. <laughs> I actually like this ESB better than London Pride, personally. That's another fuller beer? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like, I, I can picture the bottle, but I don't... Yeah, I, I feel like... I've I probably can't... had it, like, three times. And, like, yeah, I can't pinpoint the, the flavor, but I, I really like this beer, actually. This yeah. is yeah. something I will, even after just, just a couple sips, this is something I will, I will buy again. On purpose. It was not, not particularly cheap, so probably not. But oh, really? I mean, it was like ten dollars for four. Should we be talking about the price point of these beers? No, I mean, that's they're all too high. <laughs> I think. I mean, because <laughs> I know I always know that I'm I'm, I'm splitting it four ways. So I'm like, that's a good one. I'll get that one. I want to try it. <laughs> like Bowser was saying, it, if it's super common in London, it's, it's expensive just because it's. Important. known as you know a regular english beer and it's not tip, like not sold in large quantities here yeah it's like how budweiser yeah. is expensive in other countries yeah this is great <laughs> yeah thanks for picking this you're welcome they both taste like like what they should they're great examples of what we were aiming for good point great. and like neither one is like i'm not going to say one's better than the other because they're not they're just good examples of what they are yeah i think i would agree with that personally my opinion would be that the, this one is better i figured for the reasons I have previously listed. <laughs> okay. See you about. Yeah. So fuck the Germans. I like the British. Just kidding. Just kidding. So back to fucking the Germans. What what happened in the rest of this movie? <laughs> so let's sort of like expand a little bit and let's talk about the technicals. So yes. I I broke my notes down by department because this movie is such a great example of how all the departments sort of come together to make one well executed film so i broke it down by photography direction sets editing etc so i'll sort of go through and then we can talk about it but the biggest thing to talk about for sure uh is the photography because of the the one take conceit Mm -hmm. so it's meant to be technically two unbroken shots which is amazing and that's really hard to do and they pulled it off really really well with a lot of really clever uh camera choreography and movement and some technical stuff between like the way so what they would do in order to get the camera to keep moving you essentially had to hand it off from tool to tool someone would start carrying it and they would be walking with the characters and then they would hook it onto a crane and the crane would keep taking it and then it would take get taken off the crane and put on a truck and then keep going but all simultaneously what do these cameras weigh they're not super heavy they shot on the alexa lf mini which is that is digital pretty, it's digital it's pretty small. It's a. It's basically a cube that's like five by five by five, maybe six by six by six. It's um, smaller inches. than a pair of shoes. Inches, inches. Yeah. It's it's pretty small. I have a, a quick interruption. Yeah, it won't mm-hmm. be quick. Does this make it more interesting? Yeah. So I'm gonna. Or do they just that. do it to do it? Yes, I think it takes a good story and makes it better. It enhances what it's trying to say and how it's trying to say it. Okay. 
Couldn't yeah. agree more. Right. And how it brings you in as an audience yeah. member, mm-hmm. in my opinion. It's more intimate. You're, yeah. yeah. And then just the time, the time scale, too. Like, when you watch a movie and there's a shit ton of cuts and, like, mm-hmm. time is moving faster, you kind of get, start getting these expectations about when it cuts and how much time has yeah. passed. Whereas with this, everything is immediate. So we brought it up before. Like, when Blake gets stabbed, it's so jarringly quick, even mm-hmm. though it is off frame, because you're used to everything moving at quote unquote normal pace. A cinematic as opposed pace, to yeah. other, uh, yeah, as opposed to other movies where you're already used to a lot of cuts and changes in in time. Yeah, and I think Sam Mendes, the way he described it, is like you're feeling every breath with these two characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think beyond the one take conceit, the photography is just objectively beautiful, even if they were individual cut shots i think it's just i mean it's roger deakins like we said it's it's just beautiful photography uh, on a purely technical level but i also really loved and ben you started talking about this too when they were going around the big crater with the water is Mm -hmm. the way that they transitioned in scale constantly it kept switching between really really close really intimate and then like really big wide scale and it sort of kept recontextualizing these two small guys in this big huge war the first shot right is just the landscape and then pulls out a little bit and then you see the two main characters that you're going to follow for the whole movie and then the camera keeps following them further and then you see the rest of the camp that they're in and the trenches and the whole big scale of this war machine and Mm -hmm. it it sort of it really before being brought into a nice tight bunker and then back to the two of them talking with each other the way it switches between the scale is is really amazing and it's it's a purely for photographic effect and it it's done masterfully it's it's, see that that doesn't sound interesting to me it feels to me like prod rock (laughs) like i don't care that you modulated 19 times in this song it doesn't make it a better song I think I don't think it shows off as much as you think it does. It sounds like it the way Rob's talking about it. I but would I think... say I would say Birdman if I'm going to compare it to another. Movie oh, absolutely! Birdman's worse at it, but Birdman's a fantasy movie. That's Birdman fair. tries to show off more. Yeah. Than, yes, and it does. And and that's the, does. But that's the point of it. The point of mm. this is to be a movie about war that is mostly real. Sure. Is real. Yeah. Which but is why I'm upset about the milk. It does not feel show off. There are parts okay. that felt fakeish. Like I will say, when he jumped off the bridge into the water, mm. there was some digital correction or. VFX. Oh yeah, they they merged three shots together to do that because he had, they had to shoot him falling against a green screen, just like straight falling. Yep. And then him jumping off, and then him landing were three separate shots that they had to digitally stitch together. And there's only you can't stitch that together without it feeling kind of digital puppety. Yeah, something you know? fe- something felt off. In yeah. that moment, and like that's enough to ruin it for me. That sucks. I mean, <laughs> for you. That's, I mean, even if <laughs> as the it, moviegoer, yeah. but that's not that's not a casualty of the one take. But it is. No, they should just cut instead of stitching it, and it would be that much. No, I mean, even, uh, what I'm saying is, in in movies where they have like traditional photography and editing, they still have to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I don't and, watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying in general, like. A good, oh, a good example. Another Deacons and Mendes, but in in Skyfall, the train sequence and the part where like James Bond gets quote unquote shot, they did the exact yes. same process. They shot someone jumping off a bridge, then they shot uh, someone falling against green screen, and then they shot Daniel Craig landing in water, and they stitched all of that together into that one shot. 
Wait, the Daniel shot. Craig was in 1917? No, I'm talking about Skyfall. No, because he was There's he always wasn't, people falling He wasn't bridges? previously in a Sherlock movie. I'm telling you. That's the uh, way cast <laughs> did this. That's a common technique that's used whether or not they're doing a, trying to do a continuous take or not. And that's just a nature of filmmaking. It's fine. Right. I don't like I don't like it. Okay. My my only point is that when it comes to watching a movie, that is the part that is the only part in the movie that felt like I'm showing off or I'm trying to do something that I can't quite achieve. That's what it felt like to me because it did feel, I don't know if unnatural is the right word, but something felt off about it. Yeah. So, so that would be the only, and, and my, my point is that there was one shot in this two hour movie that made me feel that when they were doing something difficult so i don't think they were showing off just to dig into the the technicals of that a little bit just so people know how that's done so what they do is like i was saying you have the three elements the jump they shoot the a fall. guy falling in front of a green screen yeah, yeah, yeah. but what they do to stitch like them in together, the matrix <laughs> to stitch them together <laughs> they make a 3d model of the like actor. Beetlejuice. so it's it's like a ragdoll 3d model like a video game character that mm-hmm. they like, okay, so they, they have the photography of him running up and jumping, and then they map the 3D mm-hmm. character to that, and then have it do the transition frames, and then into the photography of him falling, and then again, they bring the model back to to the transition from the falling to the landing. So that's why it feels a little off, because it's an actual like 3D character in those gotcha. transition points. You know, that's just getting into Uncanny Valley stuff. It doesn't quite move in a perfectly natural human way and they do some tricks with the camera to help kind of make it work they like digitally accelerate the camera's movement a little yeah, bit. yeah yeah it was like blurred which definitely helped in that moment in that specific shot the last little note i have about the photography is is of that scene but as a whole like the transition from nighttime to dawn that whole sequence that transition is going to go down as one of the greatest cinematic moments in film of all time it's just Ever? so fluid Ever. like wow. it's, it's not, so it's, amazing you're it's just not gonna say quick. that yes i am he just said that. Bold who, the, who the fuck are you <laughs> it's just like it's so <laughs> incredible it's like it's it's pitch dark there's fire everywhere and that's where it starts and he's like he's running and as he's running the sun is rising and they actually shot it at sunrise so this is they actually photographed this and the sun is rising the light is changing but it's totally seamless. And that's one of the hardest things to photograph. I mean, you really they have put that on the Blu-ray cover voted <laughs> one of the best moments in cinematic history of all time. Like by, quarter, the <laughs> by, by one, one quarter by for conveying nights to dawn. Now there's movies that have done similar kind of things, but nothing like the way this one does it with, with all the movement and the stuff that's going on. It's incredibly hard to pull off the way that they do. I, I couldn't name I couldn't name another movie that allows the transition from night to day to take place in that way. Obviously, there's plenty of movies that have a scene at dawn or at dusk, and then it's night. But I've never seen the full transition. That's what was so striking to me in this movie. Mm-hmm. If you're up at that hour and you're able to see the sun come up and that light blue, and then the full like it felt very real. Yeah. It was good. Seeing where he started and where he's ending up in the river is just 
it just, I don't know. <laughs> As someone who knows how they photograph this stuff, it's like, that blows my mind how that was continuous. The only thing I'll just add is that Ben said he couldn't think of another movie that depicts a dawn or has that transition. There is a, a very From famous complete I think, scene in Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. Uh, oh, in which yeah. Lawrence is playing with a match, I think, and then he like yeah. snuffs it out or that's he does the thing with his hand because he's. He, he, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the most famous ahead, cuts bro. of all time is that yeah. cut. Oh, sounds oh, better than this one. Oh, <laughs> you would, if you wouldn't like this movie, you would hate Lawrence of Arabia. Probably. <laughs> it's like five hours long. That's way too much. And if you're talking about a movie movie person's movie, <laughs> you would you would hate you would hate Lawrence of Arabia. It's yeah. a fantastic film though. Yeah, and probably I, whatever. Everyone well, yeah, should that, watch it. That match cut is one of the greatest cuts mm. like up there with the cut from the bone to the spaceship in two thousand one. Oh uh, yeah. You know. Um but yeah, I mean you can't really the only way that that photography really works and you can execute it that well is if, if you have really good direction. I mean, obviously the, like the takes a really long and that takes a lot of coordination with the camera and like figuring out how to pass that camera off. You need to make sure that the actors are in the right place. The sets are set up in the right way and you know where the camera's going to move and how the ca characters interact with each other. And I think this movie nailed that really well. You know, we were talking about other movies with really long takes and Children Men is a really good example, but I think this executes the long take in a much more natural fashion. Children Men is amazing to watch, but it feels like a long take. Here right. it just feels natural. And I think this is where so Sam Mendez, he he's a film director, but he directs more plays than he does movies. And I think this is where his experience as a stage director really helps him out you don't have the luxury of the cut. Everything has to kind of work as it exists. And the Lies. camera's just there to capture it. Well, I mean, plays have separate scenes. So yeah. Right. But cut. like, but he's got a great sense of what each scene is about and who these characters are normally like in most standard films, you have, you are assembling the scene from different takes and you can kind of reassemble it as, as you're editing and, and things like that. It, like with stage, you have to know what everything's about and that's it. You don't have the luxury of cutting away. And, you know, one of the things he said, which is really fascinating, is if you think about it, these sets had to were completely constructed, even, you know, the the farmhouse and the canal. The canal actually existed, but like they built the, the buildings around it and that kind of thing and the bridge. Um, mm -hmm. But he was saying the scene itself can't be longer than the land and the land can't be longer than the scene. So the sets that they're in have to match the exact length that the scene takes, right? Why so the, can't the land be longer than the scene? Because they need to get from point A to point B physically, but then f between those points, the scene itself needs to actually happen. They need to be paired perfectly. But if there's too much land, you can still film a scene. Yeah, you but just then don't get through all the land, <clears throat> right? But if the camera's not cutting, you need to get to that point in the land, right? Like, okay, yeah, but if there's the more, it's point. fine. Like, no, yeah, but, if I only walk but, halfway through a field and film it, it's fine. Yeah, but that's when you cut. Yeah, but if you're not field, cutting, there's an you end need point. to get to the other side of the field <laughs> for the next scene. You know, feels you, too big. You're in the middle of the field still. Exactly. The scene. Yeah, exactly. Having time and distance with lions involved 
that takes a lot more choreography than a static room or a static set. No, of course. Yes. Yeah. The way he, the reason why he said it that way is because one, they had to dig all these trenches. They had to build the orchard. They had to build the farmhouse. They had to build the town. You know, they had to build all this stuff around how long each scene took. Is yes. the point. Yeah. So that's what he means by the land, because he had to literally shape the land. It's a silly statement to say two ways. Say it one way and it makes more sense. Right. Well, I my opinion is that it's a dumb statement. This was a very pedantic argument. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dumb statement. <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's, 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 let's move on. Stance to take. Let's let's move on. Should we move on to beans? Yeah. Well, no, speaking no, of sets, plenty more, plenty more, and I would like to talk about the sets as well. Yeah, so speaking especially of the, the set dressing. Yes. So speaking of the sets, it, it, all of them were amazing, and we we talked about the details of the trenches and, and characterization between the old English trench, the German trenches, and the new newer English trenches. But if you look at like the town and the farmhouse specifically, the way that they built them, there's so much detail, and like they went a little bit beyond that they added so much personal detail to these sets and, and it adds to this environmental storytelling. There's all these other stories being told simply through looking at the set. That's not explicit in the actual film and the photography. Like, you know, he's walking through the farmhouse. There's the bed, mm -hmm. there's the, the stuffed animal, there's the ransacked kitchen. Yep. That, and it's so beautifully detailed, you're yeah. immediately thinking, what happened to this family? And there's a story there, and you get yep. the pieces of it that where you can put together your own story that's totally not related to what we're talking about. But it's there, and it exists. And it helps make this world feel more real. They did that so well in this movie, way more than, than so many other movies uh, I've seen. This is definitely one of the best examples of that that I've seen. I would completely agree. You're Again, you're drawn into the world of the movie so immediately and so uh, continuously and pervasively throughout the farmhouse scene is a good one. I think when they're going through no man's land, mm -hmm. definitely through the trenches, the differentiation through the trenches, even when they're going through the tunnel and the bunker, yeah, everything feels very real. And your brain can't help as the audience member watching this and being like, trying to put the pieces together thinking about what what happened in this space to make it look like this now and sometimes they talk about it when they're going through the the quarry-ish area and you see all these giant artillery shells and broken down stuff they actually explain what happened yeah. but other times throughout the movie it's it's a story in and of itself that mm -hmm. helps i don't know augment or add to the the main storyline yeah it's really really good and i assume Correct. I assume like the types of flasks that they're using, the types of guns that they're using are all accurate to the time that I, I only have a base level knowledge of, of military equipment of World War One, but it seemed accurate. Yeah, it felt accurate. And, you know, again, I, the same way I, I have sort of a basic knowledge of that, but, you know, at, le at least it felt the right way. There was yep. I forget where this was, where I read either read this or saw this in, in some sort of promotional thing or something. But they were talking about this movie specifically, but it's sort of a, a global a thing they do across war movies in general. So what they do is they kind of they change the size of the helmet, specifically the Brody helmet, which is the wide flat one that they mm -hmm. wear in this movie. They change the size of it based on real life because I forget which word, if they make it bigger or smaller. I think they make it smaller, but they do that because it doesn't work well on camera. Oh, does it hmm. bends or something? 
Well, no, it just makes their faces look kind of weird in 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 look too um, small in perception. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. yeah. If it's if they're in real life too big, it makes their faces look too small. If it's you know, or the other way, you, you, you don't want to make them self conscious about having a small face. Through the you just have to frame them differently. <laughs> in the, in the I mean, side. optically, like through the glass, optically physics will change the way things look once it's recorded, and so you have to play with physics to make things look normal. Mm-hmm. And sometimes doing that is is adjusting the way things actually are you gotta build, you gotta build the helmets like the for the actor not like the actor it. for the helmet yeah. yeah wait did you just say when you fucking said <laughs> that you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable sir um in terms of the sound for a war movie there's not a lot of gunshots when there are gunshots they're like very loud and pronounced and i thought that was sort of like an interesting when he's sniped yeah exactly but the other thing to talk about is the editing. We've mentioned this is sort of meant to appear as a single take. They obviously didn't shoot it as a single take. Like we said, you know, the longest one was eight and a half and the shortest one was 39 seconds. So what they do is they'll try to hide those cuts. A really good example, when they first walk into the bunker in the beginning and they go to talk to Colin Firth and they walk down the stairs and it goes completely black for a second. That's a cut. Objects. Colin Firth couldn't be on set both days. So. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, we had a day, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, no. Another example where you'll see um, them hide cuts is, is if a, a, an object, whether it's a tree or a rock or, or something, or a piece of debris, whatever fully covers the frame. And they'll use I watched that out to... for that because when we saw that in theaters and I asked you about after the movie, like how they do that, mm-hmm. I watched specifically for that. And even, knowing that was the technique that they used i don't understand fully how they do that anyway yeah continue. it's it's still really well done then uh like in star wars right like a wipe like a cross screen wipe mm-hmm. starts on one side and like slides across from one scene to the other yes so imagine that wipe but the two scenes that they're cutting from are very very similar at least they have the same ending point and starting point but then instead of that sort of gradiated soft focus wipe there's like a rock that moves across the screen instead of a rock wipe the line which they digitally add or that's physically which they digitally or... add uh, Either, well actually okay. that's, eh, let's that's... let's get a little more specific so they could either completely digitally add it where it just doesn't exist or it does exist on set and they shoot it so they shoot like the end of the scene and then goes across the rock to nothing and then they start see- next shot, next scene with the rock and goes across the screen and then the next scene. And then what they can do is they cut out the rock itself the, yep. in a process called rotoscoping, right? They trace the shape of it and they pick from the next scene or the previous scene, whichever one works best. And then uh, basically do like a mask over the next scene and animate wow. it over. So that makes sense to me. The amazing part is First of all, how quick it is. So there's only a mm-hmm. few frames, right, where that yeah. takes place. Yeah. And then calibrating the lighting between the first yeah. one and That's the second really one. Because I feel like the sound is another one that maintains that continuity. So mm-hmm. that cut can get lost oh, yeah. as your brain's processing the yep. sound. But mm-hmm. then the mm-hmm. lighting in between the previous scene, not even, you know, not even considering the light on the rock, just the right. light on the scene. Yeah. To the other one, not to mention, and this is a testament to the to the acting, the um, 
emotional state that is mm -hmm. being expressed that the actors, especially, and I'm forgetting that the main guy, the guy who plays Schofield, what was his name? Uh, George Mackay. George Mackay is able to maintain between those cuts is very consistent. Yeah. Even if it's not necessarily the best acting, I did think it was very good, but it is at least consistent. And to maintain that continuity across all of these different technical aspects is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and to speak to the lighting specifically, they would wait whole days to make sure that the lighting was what it should be because wow. in order to make this all work, because it was single take, they couldn't set up lights because you're basically shooting everything in 360 degrees. So you couldn't have like the stands and the lights and what all that stuff. So you were relying on natural lighting, which means the sun and the clouds. So if you're shooting a scene, you know, scene one and scene two, but you were shooting them weeks apart, you had to make sure that the cloud cover was exactly the same or the sunshine was exactly the same before you shot it. So they would have to, they would sit there on set for like half a day waiting for the clouds to come over to make sure it looked the same. I wonder if in that boredom of sitting around waiting for things to happen, anyone was like, hey, this is kind of like what the British soldiers <laughs> felt like when they were in the yeah. trenches. I think the actors... Waiting for some shit to happen that they had no control over. <laughs> yeah. No, the actors definitely got into that a little bit, uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, those, the editing and the photography are, are and the sound are, are very large parts of the technical stuff that I wanted to talk about. But the other thing, I mean, we talked about the music a little bit, but um, what I love is when the scores are great, but then they sneak in a song that helps the score itself and sort of enhances what it's trying to say. So like in this, they had that soldier singing that acapella version of Wayfaring Stranger, which was used so beautifully. Um, oh my God. Yeah. All the rest of the sound, they, they maintain a little bit of that ambient woods, quote unquote mm -hmm. woods sound of like leaves and maybe yeah. a couple bugs or something. It's like our podcast with that bird, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still there. Listen, listen for it. But most of that, um, what might be called ambient noise, slowly fades out as the singing increases in volume. Another very emotional, yeah. beautiful, beautiful scene. scene. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in terms of technical stuff, that, that's sort of all of my notes. Anyone else has uh, something that they want to bring up? You've touched on them all. I would only reinforce that it's the marriage of all these different mm -hmm. technical aspects um, together that makes a, a, a beautifully crafted uh, story and specifically film because I think that's come up is that like this the the way this story is told the medium is crucial to yeah. the impact and the, and the story and the emotions that it's trying to um, convey yeah no I think that's a good point I think this can only exist as it does as a movie which is always really fascinating to see it's like it's like um, something that sort of really leverages every element that makes this medium this medium you know mm -hmm. So, I, so let's talk about themes. Well, do we want to do a quick beer check? Yeah, uh, um, my beer is empty. I'm finishing my beer. Yeah, I'm almost. Yeah. I'm almost <laughs> done with my. I, I might Very go empty. go quick. Grab a, a straggler. <laughs> straggler. <in there>. Um, <laughs> but no, I I think and this was a good choice. I I don't think I've had the ESB before. I've had mm. the the London Pride. I, it's something. It's another Fuller's, but I I don't I I can't remember now. But I haven't had this one. And uh, it's good. yeah, it's good. I, I think 
you know, my opinion stands the same. It's it's definitely a very much like a pub beer. Like you oh, just yeah. sit in a bar and drink it all day. So um, it tastes like dark wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great way to describe it. I think you could finish this beer in like five minutes if you wanted to. Oh yeah. If you're just pounding beers and you're thirsty. <laughs> pounding them. Uh-huh. Just pounding them. I have a very easy drinking beer. I have a coworker who instead says pounding beers. He says throating beers throating Ugh. Ugh. i don't like that right <laughs> it sounds like he puts the whole <laughs> bottle down his throat <laughs> right it like just sounds like <laughs> he's deep and just throwing like, these beers that's disgusting i don't like that at all yeah it always <laughs> upsets me when i hear it anyway i thought i'd share that pain with the rest of you yeah <laughs> I, yeah i don't blame you for that i suppose <laughs> <laughs> all right so i, I i'm curious because Bowser, you said when we were talking about initial reactions it, that it doesn't really um, get super deep in a lot of these questions. So I'm curious to see what you think of what the the thematics are and what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that it doesn't get super deep, and I don't think the thematics are super deep except for a couple like things thrown in there, like the cherry blossom and the bill, <laughs> which we've talked about a lot. I mean, Terry Rothson classically symbolized the transiency of youth and life mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they bloom briefly and then they fall very soon after they bloom. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I guess that. Which this movie shows. It yeah. shows them blossoming when they're at the farmhouse and then it shows them falling when he's yeah. in the, the river, in the channel. And then in May, we have to pick them. Me and Joe. Takes the whole day. So these ones will goners. Oh no. They'll grow again when the stones rot. You'll end up more trees than before. And it's certainly noble that, that Blake is the one that knows so much about cherry blossoms. It's he's he's clearly the the stand in for the innocent youth in this film. Absolutely. Hmm. Ben, what 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 did you see? What did you get out of it? Uh well I agree with those motifs. Um with the cherry blossoms and the milk as a very natural life-giving thing that is a commodity, something that's to be desired and something necessary for this younger life, right? The youngest character is this baby. Um, The theme that is most prominent for me in this is the, um, as we've already discussed, the futility of fighting for something that doesn't seem to personally affect you Mm -hmm. and is dictated by powers greater than you and where people can fall on how they see that. Mostly in this movie, they're depicted as disillusioned um, to the cause or unaware of the cause. Mm -hmm. We don't know, sir, but we've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. We know, sir. If you'll just take the letter. Settle a bet. What day is it? Friday. Friday, well, 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 none of us was right. This idiot thought it was Tuesday. Even though the the generals and the lieutenants and the corporals have a more immediate, uh, have a great sense of immediacy and urgency in how they need to act, they're just as defeatist, mm-hmm. like Bowser mentioned, that, that Benedict Cumberbatch's character is like, well, they're going to attack us again anyway. So even at the end of the movie, we have a, a happy ending, quote unquote, because... He completes the mission so far as he can, but 
there's still this feeling that it's going to happen again. So I would say this, the themes of, of futility, specifically within war and, and even more specifically within the World War I context, is, is the most striking theme that hit mm-hmm. me. Definitely, you see a lot of that. For me, I think the question that it brings up and discusses is what makes it worth it? What is that one good thing that you can pull out of the encompassing hell that makes you earn the right to go home? The milk. No, you know, it's the pictures of his daughters and his wife. Right. But that he, he totally opinion. ignores that until the very end because yeah, he's like, you know what? I did this thing. These 1600 men didn't go into that trap. They didn't die. He did that one good thing. And he's like, you know what? Maybe I can come back. The picture says come back to us. He, he, maybe he can come back to them. And maybe he can have that normal life. You know, that's not unique to this movie for sure. But it has this other intimacy through the single take. You really live with these two characters over these two hours. And they feel like real people thrown into this hell situation. When he gets to the town, like, it's this hellscape literally on fire. And the shadows, and the which shadows goes back a totally little bit nightmare. to the technical. There's, like, there's no milk. First of all, why were yeah. they firing all those flares at night? But the way the shadows moved, it was very, it was scary. Right. Was and scary. like, you know, you could, if you want to look at this in a very symbolic way, you've got the town that's on fire. That's hell, right? And it's on fire, literally. And then he jumps in the river and he's floating down the river with the dead bodies, which is very reminiscent of like the river sticks. Oh, sure. The crossing point between the living and the dead. And when he crawls out of it, the first thing is the petals, the flower petals, and Wayfaring Stranger singing in the background. And I just want to, just real quick, so this is being sung in the woods by a soldier way far from where he is. So he just hears these words coming through the trees. I am a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world of woe Yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger In that bright land to which I go So there's this sense of transition from limbo, which is where they start and then they go through actual hell. They go into the underworld. They go, th- and then they cross the river, or he crosses the river, and then comes out on the other side, a... where he's accomplished this thing, where he finally feels, I can face my family again, after right. all of this shit I've been through. It's kind of like Frogger. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, like I said, that's not a unique thing to this film. That's something that Saving Private Ryan does. You know, Tom Hanks like, earn this, right? Um, that's exactly what it's about. <laughs> the, the difference, I think, between this movie Art and Private this. Ryan is that the photography and that conceit of the single take takes that same question and that same idea and makes it much more personal uh, and much more intimate. Saving Private Ryan is, a, again, might be using the term wrong. It's a movie. And yeah. this is a film. 
Now I'm using that wrong. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, and Private Ryan's a beautiful film, and 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 I love it. And and you know, they he Spielberg does it in a different way with like these very rich characters, um, that sort to sort of ground it in reality. But, um, I think that what makes this movie special is that it takes those same questions, same ideas, and then because it attaches it to these characters so intimately with the with the way it was shot and the way it's told. Mm-hmm that it re-asks those questions in a different lens. Right. Right. You're not asking it and looking at it from a global, like, you know, here's all of Operation Overlord and D-Day and Omaha Beach kind of way. It's, it's, it's these two individually and you, those little personal connections that they have, like the little moment between Schofield and, and the woman and the baby and the connection with Blake and his brother. Those are the things that they connect with, and that's what the limit of what they see. And I think that brings us way more into who these people are, and then therefore what they did, and how they did it, and how they got through it, and how they survived, and what that means. Because these are things that they're going to carry for the rest of their life. That's a really good point. I, there's no idea how any of us can expand on that. <laughs> All I could do is take away from it. I think that summarizes yeah. it. That that mm-hmm. summarizes it really well, and I I wonder if even beyond war movies, if that idea of going into hell and coming back is even more ubiquitous in stories, or like going into the worst of a situation and then coming out of it, um, maybe could be expounded to outside war movies. But the um, I think the point you're you're putting there about the intimacy that's created by the single take is unique and. Again, I don't know of other movies that capture that. So I would agree with your analysis that that's what makes this movie special, that that's, it uniquely captures that through its medium. In terms of final thoughts, if you want to go into the where we think this movie sits in, in, and then do our rating, which we decided was one out of four, right? One yeah. beer out of four, Pat. One beer out of four. Both pack. of these beers came one beer out of four, four packs. So. Right. Okay, that's fair. Are we recording this somewhere? Like, are we writing this down? <laughs> no. Just, so you know, just in our fans. Our fans can, uh... Yeah, our fans yeah. are writing it down. <laughs> well, yeah, they'll, so, they'll track it. Uh, so my final thoughts on the beers. I really like the German beer mm-hmm. for what it is. It's not fair. amazing. Am I going to go pick it up and buy it again? Probably not. But, like, if I'm at a beer garden, like, it's up there with my top beer garden beers. Like, that type of beer is what I... It's unfortunate because I like them the best, but you can't drink them all night. You'll just black out. Yep. So we'll just roll right through this, even though it's 7 o'clock and everyone can hear all the banging outside. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the well, German beer is really good. We should note that. We should, uh... 7 o'clock, thank you to all of our first responders and medical professionals and everyone that's out there doing fighting the good fight. Thank you. Wow, that sounded so genuine. I know, right? <laughs> I have a friend that's a Jesus, doctor. Yeah, I can tell him. Um, thank you, Andy. <laughs> He's not listening. No. Um, the German beer was very German. The British beer was exactly what it was supposed to be. And why? And I've I've said this to Bowser a lot. Like one of my favorite breweries is Schlafly Brewing, because all of their beers taste exactly like what's on the label. If it says mm-hmm. coffee stout, it is a very good coffee stout. It's never going to be like mind blowingly interesting or amazing, but it'll be very accurate to what it is. And that's what both of these beers felt like, because they were like super accurate. 
And so, and like, and I, and I don't rating. even fault them for not being better. They're just what they are, and they mm-hmm. they own up. They How are your viewer rating for the movie? Oh, it's like a two, if that. No, for the movie. <laughs> two out of three for the movie. No, for the beers. Oh, for the beers? Oh, like, do the oh. beers apply to the movie? No, no, no. How do you rate the beers out of four? Oh, the beers. I mean, it it's it's such a subjective rating. Like That's four out of four. We're asking being, you specifically. Being, like what I go out <laughs> for your subjective <laughs> opinion. That's actually what this entire podcast is about. I don't I know, know if you're aware. I know, but like it doesn't feel fair to give them a rating because they're not trying wow. to compete against anything. They're trying to be what they are. They're trying. Sounds to be like honest. you're giving them a four out of four. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, it's a four out of four for what they are. Would I pick there them up go. tomorrow? No. Okay. Okay. Sorry, it was a uh, long-winded way so, to get to it. I'll just no, but thank, sincerely thank you all of our our uh, doctors and nurses and everybody. <laughs> Bowser, what do you think? I'll give the the German beer a three out of four. I agree with Andrew that it's a very good example of what it's supposed to be. I don't particularly like that type of beer. It's a little high alcohol, difficult to drink. You need like a salty snack with it. And I think with the salty snack, it would be pretty good. I'd enjoy it at a beer garden with the pretzel. But just my personal subjective preference would give that a three out of four. And the Fuller's ESB, I'll give I'll give it a four out of four because I do like these. And I can drink these a lot. And uh, they're great on their own. Yeah, you could crush them. You could uh, throw them. <laughs> four out of four crushes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Are we also rating the movie at this point? Yeah, yeah, rate the yeah. movie. Yeah. Wait, I didn't get to rate the movie. You said two out of four. You said two. You said two. No, I was talking about uh, not even. <laughs> what would you like to give the movie, Vince? I don't know, like one. Okay. okay. I'll give it a one. I'm writing this <laughs> down, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. where you and I'll give the movie a three. Technically, it is impressive, but I also thought that there it wasn't a particularly deep thematic movie, in my opinion. It threw some themes in there, and the technicals did help with that. I don't know if it's something that I'll remember years down the line and think about in the past as like a classic. It is a good movie, and that's why I'm giving it a three. Do you yeah. think if they went more into the context of World War One, you would have found the theme, like if they had gone into themes that related to the, that specific context, that that would have made it a better movie? If no. they did it well. <laughs> if they... Sure, sure. Assuming they did it with the same tact <laughs> and, um, you know, skill uh, as they did the other... Aspects. Yeah, I think I think that would have made it feel more memorable to me. Even if it's being told from an ordinary soldier's perspective, if they... I mean, this movie did not have very much dialogue, so I know that that is, you know, a lot of that is often communicated through dialogue. But, yes. Yeah, I would agree with that statement that you just made, Matt. That if they did have some more discussions or or something about that that theme, it might have felt a little bit more significant. The reason I asked Bowser that question is because that's how I was trying to define whether or not I find this a four or a three movie. I love this movie. I continue to love this movie. I think it's great. I enjoyed rewatching it. I would be totally open to rewatching it again. So I rate my beers and movies pretty similarly in terms of their frequency of consumability. If I can watch a movie multiple times, that's probably a good sign that it's a good movie. 
Same thing with the beer. But I am going to give this a three out of four for that reason that uh, I was just discussing with Bowser, uh, because I think a greater context of the war itself would have made it even a more interesting movie, which is such a nitpicky thing and speaks to how well they did with all the other aspects of the movie. Um, now, for the beers, I'm giving the German one because I drank it without food. I'm giving it a two out of four. If I was eating food with it and in a beer hall, I'd probably give it a three out of four. It it was the last beer I was drinking that night. I might give it a four out of four. If you had now, three the British them, beer, get a five. Yeah. The British beer, I'm straight up giving a four out of four because I would love to have another one of those right now. My rating system is solely based on can I repeat what I just <laughs> Does it feel good? Let's do it again. <laughs> That's it right there. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think both beers, they're, they're both really good. And like Andrew said, they're both really great examples of what they are. I think I would give both of them three out of four. I wouldn't like immediately reach for either one as like my next beer. Better yet, they're in a fridge at a party. So they're free. So they're free? Then yeah. And there's no guilt. Do you take what else is it? What else is it? Guilt. What else do you take a third beer or do you take one of these two? Well, I I would go third beer. I think I would I would probably grab for a third beer. Uh, But these are both these are both very, very good. I go hard third beer. And I think if I I saw like for example, if we were at the beer garden and I saw the Schneider Weiss on the menu, I would be I would I might order it. But for the novelty. Yeah. And for the movie Contrary to what Bowser said, I think this will go down as one of the best war movies ever made. I think it what? will. Um, I'm here at a four out of four. But I think me personally, I think I'm going to give it a three out of four. As Wait, much as I, I'm so confused by your opinions, which is a weird coming. No, I because you know I think realistically I'd be between three and four, but. Just because some of the contrivances, like we talked about, like the milk and stuff, <laughs> even, you know, I'll forget God, some man. of it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> fine. But it's I still, I don't know. What if, um, what if when they, when she's like, the baby can't have food, needs milk. And he's like, you gotta be kidding me. I have milk. And she just and she, squeezes and she's it like, out of his man. Wait a minute. Is this 2%? It's <laughs> 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 a specific type of milk. It's not skim, mate. Right? It's not gonna work. <laughs> Coconut. We need all the fat we can get. I need. I need oat, oat milk. <laughs> this baby is lactose intolerant. You didn't bring some fucking pressed <laughs> almond milk. Contrivances. Contrivances. Um, but yeah, so you know, That's there's right. there's the the milk, which is like, yeah. fine. Yeah. I like the milk. I no. like milk. Yeah, Are you kidding me? But, you like you know, Willy like, Wonka for all the contrivances. Yeah, because it's contrivances. <laughs> that's the whole fucking point. No, this no, is no, a no. war that's, movie that's about a great, war, and it's dumb. That's like, a great point. We, we've talked about this with other movies, where it's like you know the level of suspension of disbelief in terms of the world is trying to build, and uh, you know, like Andrew's saying, like this is supposed to be very realistic, and like in order to fit the conceit, there's certain conveniences that have to be made like the airplane right where it just crashes into the barn that they had to be sitting in that's pretty convenient it makes sense in terms of the story so it's like so i'm kind of in between it i think if this was a different movie or like something told very 
much more um, traditionally, I'd be like, okay, that's bullshit. But like the way it's being told, I'll forgive it because it has to fit into the conceit that they chose to help tell the bigger story. And because of the conceit helps tell that bigger story in a very unique and, and engaging way, I'll forgive some of the contrivances that they have. So that's why it's have to fit the land, <laughs> but the and land, the land also has, has to fit the contrivances. Fit the contrivances. <laughs> By um, the way, they, it wasn't just that the plane landed right in front of them. It also was it broke through the first part of the barn and then it stopped by the second part of the barn. Like it's super contrived. No, well, I mean, okay, so these planes are not tr- they're not going very fast. Don't, don't defend it. They're not going. Very, yeah, but not... that barn, <laughs> that barn was done for. <laughs> it was barely anyway. a barn. It wasn't a barn. It was like a half stable. It was like a set piece. <laughs> yeah, it's like they made it for the movie. <laughs> almost (laughs) all of that being said i think that lands me at three or four because i'm sort of half in between you know looking at these contrivances and somewhat forgiving them one of the great war films but you know three out of four yeah well you know those are i think those are separate assessments are we gonna ask people what the we should ask people a question yeah Yeah, that's that's the question yeah, what is your favorite war film, and what do you think the God, greatest, get, the, the best war film is? Because your favorite so and the best are Star be... Wars answers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Star tweet Wars us episode two. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, on Twitter, let us know what your favorite war film is and why. You tweet know, at us favorite... at, at the Brewies. Ass ass. <laughs> you know what my favorite war, war movie is? What? Annie. Annie. No, Annie. Annie. It because technically takes place. Uh, oh, all right, yeah. Oh, okay, that too. I was gonna say, is it? It's about the the funding of of, of military <laughs> complexes, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> military industrial <laughs> complex and Annie. <laughs> Daddy Warbucks was a, was a gun salesman. <laughs> we we also have an email. You can send us an email at thebrewies at gmail For our next episode, we realize that we haven't really done a sports movie. We haven't since also, we're all such big space jam. We're huge small space jam. Yeah. We did do space jam. We did do space jam. Uh, yeah. Mm. That's, that's not like a garbage. sports movie, sports movie. But we also haven't done. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. There's so many actual athletes in that movie. We, as we talked about, there's there's, <laughs> there's like no Bill, actual athletes in the movie. We're gonna like Murray, but there's like no movie Newman. to that movie. <laughs> it's a movie. It's not a film. It's a movie. <laughs> Anyway. All right, so the movie we're doing, yes, because is... we also haven't done rom com, so we thought we'd do Bull Durham, Bull Durham, which w- would covers both genres pretty well. Uh, Kevin Costner, Tim Robbins. Well, Susan we Sarandon. won't be doing it with Kevin we'll... Costner. The movie <laughs> we'll be is talking with about Kevin it. Costner. It'd be cool. Yes. We should call up Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon. But yeah, no, no, I'll just call them up. I have their numbers. Dances with up. Kevin Costner. But yes, if if you would like to watch it. Um, before the episode, which we strongly recommend because we we talk about a lot of the movie. Um, Ben's I believe recaps it's... aren't that good. So. <laughs> um, you can watch it for free on, on Tubi and Voodoo. Uh, I believe Bill Durham is also uh, available to rent on um, Google and Apple. Voodoo is spelled V-U-D-U, not like and Tubi. Voodoo. I've never true. heard of that before. Yeah, I believe it's Tubi owned by Walmart. T-U-G-I. I think Walmart oh, oh. owns Voodoo. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye. (laughs) Off we to see